Yeah, uh, you know, speaking of the sicknesses and whatnot, boy, it's just such an abnormal thing. Brother Dean just brought up the wintertime. That, that's normally when we're sick. Amen. The winter comes and you kind of get sick, but boy, this has just been a strange, strange kind of thing. And uh, I, I believe, and I, I, I believe with my whole heart that it is certainly orchestrated stuff that they're, that they're doing. There's no question about that. Well, uh, good to have us together this evening. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 7, chapter 14, verses 4 through 7. Revelation chapter 14. Listen here, brethren, as we hear the word of God together. Verse number 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which followed the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Boy, God's mercy, His grace, it's just an amazing thing as He brings His supernatural preacher to preach the gospel unto them. Look there, if we would, finishing that verse, Unto every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Well, uh, last week when we were together, we saw the 144,000, and John was uh, uh, really um, teaching us in, in his word concerning the 144,000. What he does here now, he picks up, if you will, in verse number four, and he gives us five characteristics of these 144,000. In fact, those, as we looked at, were set apart by God. He says there, first of all, that they did not defile themselves with women. They were virgins. Now, <laughs> I believe that they were actually virgins, amen, that they were kept pure and kept holy. And you consider what was taking place around them, amen, as God used certain terminology concerning when Israel would go, can I use the word, and I will because it's biblical, they would go, you know, a whoring after other gods. They would do these kind of things. They would defile themselves with other gods. God is saying here, or John is writing on the inspiration of God, that these men were unique. They were indeed actual virgins, but they did indeed keep themselves pure and holy. It pictures, if you will, the relationship of the 144,000 with the nation of Israel. It is interesting, again, brethren, as I was talking with another brother over the weekend here, just again, how Jewish this portion of, of Revelation really is. In fact, it is. It's a type. It's a picture. We look in the Old Testament, amen, and we see time and time and time again that God called the nation of Israel a virgin nation. And that really does picture a purity, the purity that God brought to them even as he led them in the Old Testament. I want to look at just a couple of portions of scriptures concerning this. Again, a type, if you were, a picture of purity. This is what God is saying. This indeed reinforces the text that we've been in, this relationship that God is having with these 144,000 who are indeed Jewish evangelists. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah. Just a couple of portions of scripture here this evening. Again, as we allow God's word to speak to us this evening and to define what he's saying. And again, it's not, you know, my thoughts or, you know, I'm conjecturing, I'm making things up or whatever. It's actually something that God, again, said over and over and over again. He calls them here virgins, and that is a, the idea of purity, that he has set them apart to be pure unto himself. Look there again, if you would, Jeremiah chapter 18. Look at here, just a couple of them. And again, it's over and over in the Old Testament. God uses this verbiage, this language concerning 
the nation of Israel. Look there, if you would, at verse number 6. Just to bring you into context here, you remember that um, God is speaking here concerning He is the potter, Israel's the clay. And uh, again, a great portion for all those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God, that He can bend and mold and do as He wills. But look there at verse number 6. This is who He's talking about. Verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as, as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. And so he's speaking specifically to the house of Israel. Now look down just a little bit farther and look at the language that he uses concerning the house of Israel. Look at verse number 12 there, if you would. And they said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. Again, this this idea here of of the nation of Israel, again, uh, if you will, abandoning God to a large degree and going a whoring after other gods. This is what they were doing. And so he says there, if you would, uh, verse number 12, and we uh, will envy one, uh, even the imaginations of his evil heart. Look, verse number 13. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, ask ye now among the heathen who hath heard such things, O virgin of Israel, hath done a horrible thing. So again here, we see God calling the nation of Israel a virgin, and he does it again and again and again. Look at Jeremiah 31, the weeping prophet. Again, he's preaching to Israel. They've turned away. We remember, right, he's called the weeping prophet, Jeremiah 9. And we remember he had how many converts, brethren? Zero. He had no converts. He preached this whole time, and he keeps going to them. God keeps sending him to them, and he keeps saying this. Look what you're doing. You're going outside of the relationship that God has built with you as a nation. And again here in Jeremiah 31, look what he says to them. Look, if you would, verse uh, 31, verse number 20. Jeremiah 31, look at verse number 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. You just see the, you know, the great love that God had for the nation of Israel. Now look at verse 21. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to thee, these thy cities. And so again, we see God using this terminology towards Israel. This is exactly what John is talking about. He's talking about this 144,000 who are indeed set apart by God himself, who are indeed, I believe, physical, real virgin, but who have spiritually kept themselves pure and holy from whoring after those other things. And we know, again, even as we take it into the New Testament, again, look with me, if you will. God speaks of Israel as a virgin. Look what Paul, as he's led by the inspiration of God, look how he speaks concerning the church, brethren, this evening. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, just a couple of verses. <clears throat> again, God never changes. His love for his people do not, does, never changes. It's always the same. And uh, he uses <clears throat> many times the same terminology but again keeping in mind contextually who is he speaking to he's speaking to the 144,000 who are indeed Jewish men <clears throat> Jewish evangelists look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 look at verse number 1 again a familiar portion to us as bible believers verse number 1 would to god you could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me for i'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you to one husband. See that relationship there? That's exactly what John is talking about. These 144,000 have remained faithful, even as a marriage covenant to the Lord God himself. The Bible says, With a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you a chaste 
virgin to Christ. There it is again. There's that terminology. What we see here again biblically is this 144,000, this special relationship that God has set them apart to do um, is a most stunning thing when you consider where they are living. Second of all, he says, not only are they virgins, not only have they remained faithful and they haven't gone outside of the relationship with God, he says, secondly there, their faithful service to the Lamb is motivated by their consuming obedience to His will. Because John says in our text, right, that they do indeed follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. It's a stunning thing, isn't it, this principle, the true child of God. This, this is the thing, right? We're always accused, and, and I don't want to say always accused, but we are. We're accused a lot of times that, you know, well, I can choose Christ, but I can't reject him, right? I mean, and then, you, and then, and then there's this weird kind of theology that's out there. It's a, it's a stunning thing how it works, and it really is quite crazy and amazing. But the reality of it is, brethren, when God converts you, when God changes your heart, when he changes your mind, when, he in, when the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of you, you don't want to leave God. This is the most stunning thing. This is the safest place that the Holy Spirit of God will direct you, is this relationship that you have with the Father and with the Son. And so, again, we see here this, this, this desire. <laughs> One of the desires of a saved child of God is to what? Is to follow Christ. It is to be obedient to Christ. Are we perfect in that? No, but there's an ongoing relational drive to follow Christ and to be with Christ. Amen? And so this is what John is saying. He says that they will go wherever, wherever he goes. We think of many verses in the New Testament again. And, of course, this is under the Old Covenant. It's in the Gospel of John, right? Right? My sheep will hear my voice and what? And follow me. This is just a a continuation of a true child of God who's been converted, set apart, and saved, who does indeed have a desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John is saying. It's a most basic biblical principle. I can take you back into the Old Testament again and show you time and time again how the true child of God is indeed a follower of Christ. Now look back there again. John gives us some more detail concerning these 144,000. The third thing I think is a most interesting thing that he tells us concerning them. Look there, if you would, Revelation chapter 14. We'll read verse number 4 again together. This, again, is the third characteristic of the 144,000. Look there at verse number 4. The Bible says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb. There it is, that, that, that driving desire, that desire to be with Christ, to follow Him. Amen. Whithersoever He goeth. Look at the third thing. These were redeemed from among men, being the what? The first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. Well, John, again, this, character, this third characteristic that he says, that he uses this terminology here, John says that they were redeemed from among men, the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. Now, we understand, brethren, again, this again takes a little bit of an Old Testament teaching. You have to understand what John is saying here again. We remember that in the Old Testament, the first fruits, of course, amen, was a Jewish feast held early in the spring at the beginning of the harvest, of the grain harvest. And it's interesting when you study this out just a little bit, did you realize that none of Israel's grain could ever be touched or harvested until the first fruits were brought in unto God. It was a, a offering unto God. And so they would first go and they would take the best of the fruits 
of the crops. And they would take it and they would offer it unto God. And they would bring those things there. And it was really a reminder of so many things. A reminder of what God had done for them for sure. It was made unto God in remembrance of Israel's sojourn in Egypt. Again, it always takes us back there when they were in slavery. huh? And God delivered them out of it. God giving the possession of the land. It's a stunning thing. We saw this a little bit Sunday even. It was a gift. It was a gift. God gave them a land that flows with milk and honey. And part of the first fruits was to offer that unto God, to thank him, amen, for what he had done for them. In fact, first fruits, understanding it from an Old Testament perspective, as you understand it, is mentioned seven times symbolically in the New Testament. This obviously is one of them. And so keeping that in mind and understanding what the feast of the first fruits was, they were to bring the best of the first and offer that unto God. And this is what we see here. This is why God calls these 144,000 the first fruits. And here we see from this perspective that it is their unique preservation through the great tribulation. I want you to see this again. It is indeed if we can use this terminology, the first stage of a glorious harvest that God is going to bring in during the great tribulation. Again, his grace, his mercy that he continues to bestow upon them, as we're going to see here, this supernatural preacher that goes and he preaches the gospel unto them is a stunning thing. I want you to see this, the first stage of a glorious harvest that's going to be taking place. And again, pictured in the Old Testament, first fruits, Old Testament theology, Old Testament teaching, and Old Testament understanding that must be then applied to the New Testament scriptures. Look at Jeremiah. We'll spend a little time with Jeremiah tonight, the weeping prophet. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, if you would. Look what God calls the first fruits. Well, he calls Israel, just like he called her a virgin. He also calls them the first fruits. They are indeed the first stage, the first, if you will, the ingathering, the great harvest that God brought forth through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Look there to Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verse number 1. Look here what the Bible says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in the land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, in the what? The first fruits of his increase. You see that there, amen? All that devour him shall offend, ev- uh, shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. So what is Israel classified or looked at from in the perspective of God's eyes in the Old Testament? They were indeed the first fruits of his saving grace that he brought on to the nation of Israel as a whole. All through the covenants in the Old Testament, Israel was the first fruits of his saving grace. It's a stunning thing. It really is. In fact, Israel is viewed that way in Scripture. So too are even people in the church, in the early church. And I want you to see this again. First fruits, seven times in the New Testament. We're only looking at a couple of them. But again, from the idea of the Old Testament, the Jews who would have heard this would have perfectly understood what God was saying to them or what John is writing. They are the first fruits, the first stage of a glorious harvest that God is about to bring in, just like he did in Israel in the Old Testament, so he will during the Great Tribulation. And they're all going, Amen. We know exactly what that is. Look at Romans, just a, again a couple of them here. Romans chapter 16. It's interesting that it gets very personal 
it's a stunning thing when you consider the Lord. And so often we, we look at it and we understand it's a, can I, can I say this in a biblical way? It is a personal thing. You are saved personally by God himself. Okay, your family isn't saved, and then you're saved. You are saved individually and specifically by God himself. In fact, we see this in the New Testament, name by name by name. And it's interesting here as we consider this. Look here good at Romans chapter 16, if you would, with me. Again, Israel, the first, harv- the first fruits. Here we have a name, a man, who is indeed, God calls him, well, Tertius writes for Paul under, in the book of Romans here. He writes these words, Romans 16. Look there, if you would, at verse number 3. Look what the Bible says. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinias, who is the first fruit of Achaia unto Christ. Here we have the gospel going in to Achaia, and God calls this man by name. He is the first fruit. He is the beginning, the first stage of the fruit, the glorious fruits that are going to come from the gospel being preached in Achaia. And again, we see this here, this idea. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, and we'll look at this quick, and I know we got to move on, but again, I want you to see this. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is called the first fruits from the dead. We are the first fruits, or the early church, the early Christians who, whom he saved and they participated in his death, burial, and resurrections. They were the first fruits of, brothers, think of this, of 2,000 years now of what Christ has been doing. Even, well, of course, his sacrifice goes back in the Old Testament, saving people in the Old Testament. But think of the church age. This man here mentioned in Romans, the church itself, This is the first stage. This is the early beginnings of the fruit that God is going to produce all through the church age. And here we are. I was listening to a brother the other day, James White, in fact. And uh, he was, was, you know, I was listening. How how can I understand their their, their understanding of eschatology? And so I started listening to them (laughs) just to see what is this. And one of the things that triggered him, and it was an interesting thought, you know, we're always thinking that we're at the end of the church age. And uh, Brother Doug Wilson asked James White one time, what if we're at the beginning? I don't think so, but what if we are? I think we are at the end. We have been at the end since the cross, amen? I mean, we know that teaching from biblical. But you think about this for a moment, just how this works. But we see this glorious first fruits of, of the church. Again, look at James chapter 1 again, then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. But Christ in 1 Corinthians, he's the first fruits, the first stage of the harvest of the resurrection. That's what Jesus was, and those who have trusted in him since, uh, it's a glorious thing. Look at James real quickly. Again, it's the nation of Israel, the first fruits, the first stage of what God was going to do, the early church the first stage of what God is going to do. And here we see again in the book of Revelation, the first stages, these 144,000, the first stage of the glorious harvest that God is going to bring through the tribulation. Look at verse number 18. James chapter 1, look at verse, excuse me, number 18. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of 
first fruits of his creatures. There it is again, again. The early church, those who are being saved, are the early first fruits of the work of God, of what God is doing. Again, our text, the Spirit of God is saying that the 144,000 make up the first stage of a greater Jewish harvest that is being brought and will be brought in during the tribulation. Now look there, if you would. It's uh, 8 o'clock already. What do we got here? We'll go on for just a little longer. Look back at verse number 5. Again, we've had the first characteristic, the second characteristic, the third characteristic. And here again, we're going to see here another characteristic of these 144,000, these evangelists that the Lord has set apart. Look at just characteristics of holiness, characteristics of being set apart, characteristics of a true believing one who has trusted in Christ. Look there again at Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 5. Look at the, the next characteristic that we see. My pages are all stuck together here. Look at again at verse number 5. They're the first fruits unto God in verse 4. Look at verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault. Oh, brothers, it's an amazing thing if we have time tonight to look at that. For they are without fault before the throne of God. Five characteristics of these men, these Jewish evangelists, these 144,000. Well, I think it's interesting here what John does is he's led by the Spirit of God. He makes a great contrast. You remember earlier the, if you will, the beast. What was the beast doing with his mouth? He was blaspheming God. It's a stunning characteristic and contrast that we see here. So what John is doing, he's contrasting what the beast was doing, the false prophet, what he was doing, blaspheming the name of God and saying, not with these brothers. These brothers, actually, there's no guile. There's no deceit coming out of their mouth. So we see a great characteristic, if you will, of the working of God in these men. Holy Writ declares, <laughs> this is kind of amazing when you sit in your... <clears throat> When you sit in your own private time and you think about yourself, you think about your day, amen, when you're sitting there, you're reading scripture, you're praying, and you think about your day. And it's interesting, as I looked at this again, I was reminded how over and over again in Holy Writ, the scripture declares that the mouth is the organ by which the heart speaks. Think of that for a moment, brethren. The mouth is the organ by which the heart speaks. Whoo! Boy, that'll, that'll make you stand up and take attention. It's a stunning thing. Again, over and over and over in Scripture, we are told in Jesus himself, holy writ of old and the Lord God himself, speaking of this organ that speaks of the heart. I want you to see this in Proverbs. Again, a verse that's very convicting and should be uh, to us, I want you to see the number of times in this text that the mouth is referenced. And that it not only is the mouth referenced, but it's what's coming and where it's coming from. I think it's really interesting. Look here at Proverbs chapter 8, if you would, with me for just a moment. Let me spin over there quick. Proverbs chapter 8. And we'll count together because I had to. I read the text and I'm going one, two, three. Four, five, it just speaks of the, the organ of the mouth speaking what is in the heart. And it's a very revealing thing. Again, this is what John is gloriously recording by the Spirit of God for us. 
There's this blaspheming prophet over here. Here are these men who are righteous before God. They stand before the throne of God. And there's no guile. There's no deceit. There's nothing evil coming out of their mouths. A stunning thing. Look there at Proverbs chapter 8. Look at verse number 6. Here, for I what? Speak. That's one. Of excellent things. And the opening of my lips, that's two. There it is again, this reference that this text is giving to us. Shall be right things for thy mouth, that's three. And there it is again, referenced. Shall speak truth. You see, the, the, the saved, converted person, and especially this again, the text that we're in, the 144,000, this is who they were. They were these kind of men because, and we're going to look at that, probably not tonight, but because of the following verse, because of what took place with them in the following verse that we're going to look at, Lord willing, maybe next week. Look there, if you would, verse 8. All the words of my mouth, there it is again, are in righteousness, for there is nothing forward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. Now again, we understand the book of Proverbs is what? The book of Proverbs is simply the Lord Jesus Christ being born out in wisdom. That's what it is. So literally this, of course, is speaking of Christ. But we see here again this characteristic that these men had. There's no guile. There's no deceit. There's nothing like that in their mouths. In contrast to those who are Christ-hating, God-rejecting rebels during the tribulation. In fact, look at one more. Matthew chapter 12. The Lord himself, of course, addressed this. The Lord Jesus Christ. There are many, but just, just this one in particular tonight we'll read. Look there at verse number 31 again. Look at the number of times that speaking, the mouth, the organ of the mouth, speaking that which is in the heart. Look at verse number 31. Jesus here, of course, is dealing with the sin of blasphemy. He's dealing with those who are accusing him. Think of this again, brothers. We, we looked at this when we went through the Gospel of Mark. Still a stunning thing for me to even try and comprehend this, that they would call him Beelzebub. They would call him the, the, Lord, the, the, the Lord of dung, the dung of flies. I mean, just, it's just a stunning thing that they could utter such a thing about him. But listen to what he says. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word, there it is again, <laughs> it's coming out, brethren. What's in here is coming out. Speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Verse 34, O generation of vipers. Whew, that's some very interesting, powerful language that the Lord Jesus is using here. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? There's another reference to the mouth, that organ that speaks what's in the heart. It's a stunning thing. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaketh. There it is again. This is a biblical principle, brothers, that we can go back into the Old Testament. We can go into the New Testament. We can go into the tribulation time. And it's the same thing. 
One who has been converted by the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by his blood, is indeed a changed creature. Not just changed, they are created new. The old is gone, the new has come. What a beautiful thing. And one of the things, and I, we, I was talking again with somebody this weekend about these sorts of things. And it's interesting, isn't it, brother? Maybe, brother, maybe you're different than I was. But I remember before I was saved, brethren, I blaspheme God's name every other word. Stunning. And I would insert certain things into there. I mean, and not even realize it. Just it was part of who I was. And then, praise God, in October of 1987, when he saved my wretched soul. And you know what went away immediately? That went away immediately. There was no more blaspheming and using and speaking from the heart like that. It was gone. Now, there's other things, like I told that brother. There's other things that have trailed along. Some things that, well, probably struggle with my whole life. But that's one of them that changed. I mean, like that. No more was I speaking from, from the organ of the mouth out of a heart that hated Christ, but one rather that loved him. That's the difference. And this is what we see. This is what John is saying concerning these men. Now, not only was there no guile, deceit found in their mouths, but God sees the 144,000 in our text without fault. Brethren, we don't have time tonight. I'm going to kind of slow down here and stop, but because I want to pick it up and spend a little time next week, because this leads to verses 6 and 7. What takes place in what we're reading takes us right to verses 6 and 7, and what happened to these 144,000. It's an amazing thing. A term, the term without fault, is used of the absence of defects in the Old Testament sacrifice. Here we go again. Jewish. It's very Jewish text. It's a very Jewish thing that we're talking about, and they would have understood it that way for sure. It's an amazing thing. It is indeed a term used of the absence of defects in the Old Testament sacrificial animals. Who typed and pictured who? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what they did. I like what one pastor said, and we'll close with this tonight. I like what he said, although, Lord willing, next week I'm going to take it up here because I really, really like what he said. He said, the phrase without fault before the throne of God is seen in terms of a heavenly scale of perfection. You've all heard, right? We live in a society where uh, our salvation is very much, we call it the scale, I call it the scale salvation. You, you know what that is, right? You'll ask someone, are you saved? And they say, well, I hope so. Well, how do you know? Well, hopefully my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's the scale that we live in. This is the kind of scale religiosity that we live in. Not here. <laughs> There's a scale, but it's not that one. In fact, I love what he says. The phrase, without fault before the throne of God, is seen in terms of a heavenly scale of perfection. Listen, on one end of the scale is fault. So you got over here, there's fault over here. Sin. You're guilty. You're sinful. This is where you are on this end of the scale. On the other end is God. And in between the two ends of the scale is the central, if you will, the central figure, if you will, the central mechanism of that scale. And it is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. 
This is what balances and, and tips the scale, if you want to use that kind of terminology that people like to use. It's the cross that's in the middle that is the me- mechanism of the scale, which saves one. Because one cannot save himself. Because if you're left to yourself, you're always at this end of the scale. You're at fault. You have a fault. You are guilty before God. God's at the other end. And without the cross, brethren, as we know, there is no hope. There's no help. It is the only way that one can be saved. Now, I'm going to stop there. But I want you to consider verses 6 and 7, which we will take it up there next week. And let's read that together, verses 6 and 7. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, and then we'll, we'll stop. Here is, if you will, as we all understand it, and the reason I want to go here is because I want to talk about every dispensation of time. I want to talk about every age of time. I want to talk about every covenant throughout scriptures. This thread is woven through all of it. As I termed it in my little brain, it needles its way through every covenant, every dispensation of time, every person, every man, woman, or child. This is the scale. Look at here, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach unto them, brethren, that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Boy, do we realize what John just wrote there? It's a stunning thing. And again, I want to finish, and I have to stop. But I want you to keep verse 7 in mind as well. Because many, many, many have tried to take verse number 7 and say, this is the gospel they were preaching. It's a different gospel. It sounds different. No, it's not. In fact, verse 7 is not the gospel being preached. Verse 7 is the response of those who hear the gospel that is preached. That's where you must make the distinguishing marks, brother. It's not a different gospel. I read one guy and he says, it's a gospel of judgment. No, it's not. Brethren, the gospel never changes. The gospel does not change. This did not change. Verse 7 is nothing more than the response to those who heard the angel preaching the gospel. What was their response? This should be everybody's response in faith. Look at verse 7. And again, we'll finish. Saying with a loud voice, this isn't the gospel that he's preaching here. This is the response. Fear God. When, one, when the gospel is preached to someone, one of the responses should be to fear God. This is their response. This is not the gospel. This isn't the gospel of judgment or the gospel of fear or anything that men have tried to make it to be. It is not. Look what he says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. Brethren, if we go on, which we're going to look next week, I'm stopping, I promise. If you go right on into verse 15 or chapter 15, guess what you'll find? You're going to find those who heard this gospel preached living exactly this thing out. Those who by faith trusted in that gospel that was preached. And guess what they're doing in chapter 15? They're fearing God and they're giving him glory. That is exactly what we're talking about here, brother. It has nothing to do. It's not a different gospel. It sounds different. I saw one guy write, well, it sounds different. It must be a different. No, there's another gospel, but it's the gospel Paul spoke of, right? It's another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. This is the gospel. This is the saving gospel that's being preached. The eternal saving gospel that is again, brethren, and I'll say it again next week, Lord willing, that needles its way through every age. You know why I say age? Because Noah, remember Adam? (laughs) Remember that guy? 
Remember Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Remember these men? Remember them? Remember the thief on the cross? Remember you and I? Remember here in the dispensation of the tribulation period? Remember that? All of them, all saved by the saving gospel of Christ. What a stunning thing. I just, whew, it gives me goosebumps, brother. But again, this warped idea in verse 7, that it's another gospel, it's different. It is not. It is indeed the response of those who heard the gospel, and we'll see that in chapter 15 as we go forth. All right, let's, let's pray. I said I was going to be finished. I need to be done. All right, Father, we, we thank you again tonight for the word of God. We thank you, Father, for the impact that it alone has on a sinner, a lost sinner, that one would be so bold as we're going to see that it's interesting here in our text next week, Lord willing, as we're going to see, this is the only place, the only place in all of the New Testament where an angel preaches the gospel. The practical point is this, is that God has chosen his people, those who have been impacted and saved by the gospel, to preach that gospel to others. This is unique. This indeed is fulfilling the gospel mandate, and we're going to see that. This angel, this supernatural preacher is fulfilling the gospel mandate to preach the gospel unto every creature, every tongue, every nation, every land, every people. And so, Father, we thank you for that glorious promise. You have never and you never will leave those who hear the gospel without, rec without recourse. It's preaching of the gospel and then judgment comes if you reject that gospel. And this is what's happening. This is what we see. And it is a glorious thing for us to behold. And Father, we, again, are so thankful uh, for your grace to us, for your mercy. Father, tonight we think of many of our brothers, as Dean has prayed. We think of many of our brothers here, even right in Bismarck, who are suffering physically and sickly and all of these things. We again pray for them. We lift them up to you. And Father, we, we thank you again for the faithful brethren that we see here in our text. The 144,000 who are indeed set apart. Who are indeed unique in that they have all of these godly characteristics. Because of the gospel that is preached in verses 6 and 7. So Father, we thank you now. We pray all of these things in your glorious son's name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.